0: All right, we are up to the ninth commandment in our study of the uh, Ten Commandments. We will look next week at the commandment about coveting, uh, and then the week after that, looking at how Jesus Christ fulfills the Ten Commandments, and then we will move into Advent, largely be in Matthew chapter 1 through the Advent season as we look at the coming of Christ. Lord willing, January, we're going to spend a few weeks on the topic of suffering just seeing what Scripture says to that, and then in February, beginning in the book of Acts. That's uh, at least all the plans right now. We'll see how God continues to direct as we move forward. But this morning, the Ninth Commandment, what we've been doing throughout the course of this series is just reading the commandments out loud together, just as a way of reminding ourselves of them. So if you would just join me in this, we'll read these together from the screen. You shall have no other gods Number nine, bearing false witness against your neighbor. The word spin is one that is common, at least in our part of the country, in politics and public relations. The use of spin as a way of dealing with truth and shading the truth. There was an article a number of years ago called The Age of Spin talked about how in the 1950s the word already had come to be used in political and public relations circles, but it was clear then that the word meant to deceive. It was comparable to words like fiction or fudging or even lying. But by the early 70s, spin began to move from being a negative term to being assumed to be more sort of neutral. It became shorthand for, as this writer said, polishing the truth, that's one way to put it. Eventually, spin became a way to not simply augment or deflect truth, but to create truth, to at least create sort of one version of truth that you want people to believe, creating truth, manipulating words telling you that what you thought you heard you plainly didn't hear because it actually meant this. And so we've seen it in presidential campaigns by the 1980s, spin rooms, spin experts all became part of campaigns. whose job it is to take an opponent's words and put the worst possible spin on them and to take your candidate's words and to smooth them out and make them sound wonderfully appealing. In 2012, some of you remember this, during the presidential campaign, one of the debates Texas Governor Rick Perry famously forgot one of the cabinet-level offices. He was reciting three of them that he was going to say should be done away with and couldn't remember number three. And at the end of his memory lapse, just said, oops. And and it became that moment of candor, something that he was relentlessly mocked for. And, And what we saw in the aftermath of that was honesty, especially admitting a mistake, was no longer a virtue to be praised, but now was a flaw to be pounced on and something to be made fun of. One behavioral scientist who's done research on why we lie found generally two motivations far outweigh the rest. People most often lie to promote themselves and to protect themselves, to promote ourselves and to protect ourselves. And underneath that, several different sort of specific achievements. It all sort of hits this category of we lie to achieve Goals that we feel like we can't otherwise get with the truth. And so we may lie for economic gain, for some personal advantage beyond money, to project a better image of ourselves. We lie to escape or evade other people. And most often we lie to cover up a mistake or a misdeed, something that we want to be seen better in light of. Among the earliest words in Scripture are Satan, lying. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, you don't need to look there right now, but in Genesis chapter 3, it begins by saying the serpent was more crafty. You could use the word cunning or shrewd or all good synonyms there. was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And when the serpent first speaks, the first thing he says to Eve is, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said, but it is Satan's intent from the very beginning to deceive to to place in Eve's mind some doubts about God and to cause her to think that somehow God had shortchanged her, that God somehow had said, you you can't benefit at all from this garden or eat of any fruit. And so he uses this deceptive question. Eve answers and says, no, the fruit is just forbidden from only one tree. The punishment for eating of it is death. And the serpent's next words were, you will not surely die. He is lying, God has said this, Eve says this is what God said, and the serpent's response is, that's not true, you will not die, and in fact, he lies further by saying, God knows that if you do this, you'll become like him. You will become like God, and there's great benefit to be derived from eating of this tree. Jesus, in John chapter 8, talking about Satan, describes him with with, um, no hesitation, no minced words here. Your father, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. Just hold that word picture in mind. Satan does not stand in the truth because he has no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus, in describing Satan, uses this picture of standing to make the point that Satan has no association with the truth. He's not even in the ballpark. He's not even in the vicinity of truth. It's not in his range because his native tongue, that which he speaks, his first language is and always will be lying. That is the way that Satan speaks. God detests lying. Scripture tells us that plainly in several places. One of them is Proverbs 12:22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. The word abomination means something that is detestable. For us, that would be picture in your mind something that is, is so gross that you don't even want to look at it. It just turns your stomach to see it. And that's the kind of description... Scripture gives for God and lying. It is an abomination. It is, it is disgusting to God that he sees lying. The ninth commandment frames lying within a particular legal context when it says to not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's the idea of giving testimony, of testifying against someone. It is a brazen form of dishonesty. It is, it is standing in the courtroom with a judge and making a false accusation and saying this person that I know didn't do this, I'm saying they did. It is that sort of brazen, false testimony. As is the case with several of the Ten Commandments, the the specific command focuses on what is probably the most egregious one in the whole category of sins. The idea being that if, if you're willing to do this then there's probably nothing else that is off limits to you either. And so we see that in the honoring of parents. If you're willing to to dishonor parents or in the keeping of the marriage covenant, if you're willing to break the covenant with the the person who is your spouse, if you're willing to do this, who, who wouldn't you dishonor? Who wouldn't you break trust with? And so when it says here that if you're willing to point the finger of accusation at a neighbor, and falsely accuse them, then, then who would you not lie about under that circumstance? So it's sort of a, a an egregious case, but to make the point of God's detesting of all lying. In Deuteronomy 19, God says that the, the in his commandments, in his laws, that if there is to be a charge, an accusation that is to be made, it is to be made in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Uh, we know that they didn't have much in the way of Crime scene investigation at the time of the Old Testament law. They didn't have the DNA evidence or the fingerprints or the the video evidence. And so, most criminal accusations, unless there was some clear form of physical evidence, most criminal activity, the accusation came by word of mouth. It was somebody speaking it. It was my word against your word. And, And so, that could lead to fraud and to injustice, which is why God commands multiple witnesses. This must be confirmed in the mouths of others who will corroborate your accusation. If not, you, you don't have a case. And in cases where it was discovered that, that someone lied and falsely accused someone else, the punishment that, that would have come to the person who was being accused now falls on the liar according to God's law. So if you, you bring an accusation of someone that warrants the death penalty and it's found that you're lying about that accusation, you now warrant the death penalty by your action. It, it is all to speak to God's detesting Of lying and this one in particular in in Exodus is a blatant form of lying we would we would call it perjury standing in court and giving false testimony but there's a whole range of lying covered by the ninth commandment. we're gonna think about that as we walk through this this morning but but just to sort of put a label on the front of it at its core the ninth commandment forbids boosting ourselves or protecting ourselves or hurting others with dishonest words using dishonest words to either boost or protect ourselves or to harm others. I'd like you to look at Colossians chapter 3 as we seek to apply this command this morning. Colossians chapter 3 in the New Testament. The the letter to the church at Colossae begins with Paul describing the gospel as the word of truth. In Colossians 1.5, he says that they have received the word of truth... The gospel, and then he goes on from there to say that since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, twice in the early verses, he stresses the fact that this, this gospel, this, this thing being preached to you is, is God's truth. It is true, and that's the foundation it rests on. When you come to chapter 3, he's talking about how now we are changed by the gospel, how our lives are to be different as people who believe in it. And he begins to talk in terms of putting off and putting on. This is the way you used to live. Now, as a believer in truth, this is how you ought to live. And so at the uh, verse 7 of Colossians 3, he says, In these you two once walked when you were living in them. And he's already gone through a, something of a list prior to that. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See the difference here now? He says, this is... It's no longer to characterize who you were. It it, it may have been what you were, anger, malice, slander, but this should no longer characterize you. We no longer must lie to one another because we are now putting off the old and putting on the new because the new is being made new in the image of God, in the image of Christ, and that renewal is happening in our minds. When he says renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, it's, it's changing how we think. And so God's spirit is at work in us as believers, causing us to cease from these old ways that were so much a part of our lives. Old, old habits die hard, we'd like to say, and, 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 and that's, that's true, and yet he is now changing us by his grace and strength to put off the old and to put in its place the new. Lying, clearly as he describes it here, is one of those common practices. It's one of those things that prior to Christ, a person can do with more ease, can do as a, as a way of dealing with difficult conversations or dealing with problems. Lying is something that, that comes more naturally and as we interact with others. And he's saying, that may have been normal before, but it should not be now. Cease from lying and put in its place honesty. Put in its place truth because you're now being remade after the image of your creator. You are a new creature in Christ. You rest in him. He is your protection. Your lie is not going to protect you. It's he that you're going to rest in when you're in difficult situations and you're tempted to make something up to try to escape those. Trust your Savior. Speak truth and rest in him. As believers, our minds are being transformed to think and and again he says here in the renewed and knowledge after the image of its creator. The, the the constant message in Scripture is our God is a God of truth. That truth just parallels who God is. They are synonymous. God is truth, he is absolutely truthful. Jesus never exaggerates, he never shades the truth just a little bit or tells little white lies to get away with something. He never makes something up to try to make himself look better or boasting in some way. John 1.14, in introducing Jesus says he is full of grace and truth. John 14 6 Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life and so Jesus declaring that I am the truth and then in James chapter 117 there's no variation or shifting in God like a shadow would move. It means that God doesn't doesn't shift in his thinking so that so that as the culture would now say well God has to catch up you know with the 21st century and and his word needs to adapt to the 21st century scripture says God doesn't shift like that we can know that what God says is true and so he doesn't change his mind on a subject over the millennia he is consistent what he says is true Paul deals with this a little bit in the context of an A question he was getting. The the church is young. It's being born mostly among Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. And in Romans 3, he deals with the question that was being raised of, so wait a minute, Paul, you being Jewish and, and coming to faith, God sent Jesus to be the Messiah, the chosen one of the Jews, and and yet it seems like the Jews are widely rejecting him. The Jewish people are turning from him and not embracing him, and it's the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. And so that raises a question that Paul voices in Romans 3 because he wants to address it, which is if God made a covenant with them and now he's making a new covenant, does that mean God maybe did change his mind, that he's not entirely trustworthy about that covenant that was made before? Is it possible that man has found a way to nullify God's faithfulness. And Paul's answer is blunt. Romans 3, 4, he says, he answers his own question by saying, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He's saying God God is not the one who is shifting here. It is man who is inconsistent and uncertain and untruthful. It is man who is guilty. It is not God. God does not Lie, it is God's character to be truthful. It is the essence of His character, which is why He detests lying. All of that speaks to us in the sense that we then, as God's people, now are to derive from God's character the attributes that He is calling to to show forth in us. And so, truthfulness is what we are to be reflecting. As God's people. Being people of honesty and integrity who speak truth is what reflects being like our Savior. Psalm 15 begins with a question and it asks, Who shall dwell with God? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. Verse 4 goes on to say that that person is one who keeps oaths even when it's painful to do so. Now, on on one hand, we could look at Psalm 15 and we go, none of us is blameless. None of us is sinless. we We don't get to that status in this life. But the reality is, as believers in Jesus Christ, what is imputed to us is a righteousness. We are given Christ's righteousness because he was perfect, is perfect, died on the cross, rose again, defeated sin and death. His righteousness is now given to those who who trust in him. And so we we have a righteousness, not of our own inherent nature, but one that is put on us and given to our account by God. So we don't dismiss Psalm 15. It is instruction to, to we who are living out the righteousness of Christ. It is speaking to us about what we ought to look like, about how God's people should live. And it's stressing that we are to be truthful to the core our words should reveal what's in our hearts. and That's why he uses that phrase, who speaks truth in his heart. What comes out of our mouths is a reflection of what's in our hearts, and so honesty should be deeply rooted in us so that honesty is what comes out of our mouths. And, and if it's the contrary and it's dishonesty, that's, that's speaking to a lack of integrity that's, that's within us, that's in our hearts. We should never speak dishonestly about others, and when we give our word, As he's saying there in Psalm 15 on this oath-keeping part, we must strive to keep it, even when it's costly, even when we now wonder why we committed to this in the first place and said we would do it. We're still called to be people who keep our word. Psalm 15, as well as a warning. If you call yourself a Christian and yet you, you are at ease with dishonesty, if you persist in dishonesty, if you are characterized by spin, if people know that you're you're inclined to be one who's always gonna just sort of shade the truth in your favor, then that that psalm is a warning. You should not feel at ease about your relationship with God if if lying is a natural part of the way you protect yourself and defend yourself in conversations. Now. If that's where you're at, then, then I would urge you, the call there is to repent. And the, the, the urging there is, is that you would come to faith in Jesus Christ, believe in him, acknowledge that that is sinful, that lying, and, and embrace his work in you to change you. When Revelation twenty two fifteen 15 is talking about the future eternal kingdom of God, it describes those who are outside the kingdom. They did not believe in Jesus Christ, they rejected him, but then their actions proved their rejection of Christ, and it describes them as the sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, and those who love and practice falsehood. You cannot love Jesus and love lying. The two are mutually exclusive. If you say that you love Christ, your life should not be characterized by a pattern of dishonesty. Um, You cannot serve two masters. Jesus says that about God and money, and the same is true here. You cannot serve one who is the truth while also repeatedly yielding to the master of dishonesty, because that seems like the best way out of situations. Which goes back to what Jesus said in John 8 when he's talking about Satan. His point was to... To, to shine the light on those who were opposing him and standing in front of him, because he was saying to them, Your father is, is Satan. You're, you're speaking what is natural to your father. You're showing allegiance to Satan by your lies because Satan's language is lying. And if that's what characterizes your speech, you are showing allegiance to Satan and hostility toward God. And those two patterns are incompatible. All right, so maybe at this point you're thinking, So far, so good. I, I, I don't lie easily. When I do lie, I usually feel convicted about it, and I often come back and say, I blew it, I lied here, and I acknowledge it. So, so so far, I think I'm okay here. So now let's talk about some applications of the ninth commandment that probably hit a little closer to home for each of us and ways that we might undertake to break the ninth commandment. We know the commandment's serve to show unbelievers that you constantly fall short of God's standard and you need a Savior, but we also know that they show us God's standard as believers and say, we who follow after Christ, we have been told not to lie, and so what are the what are the put-offs, put-ons? The, the, the reality is we who love Christ and love the gospel still know how to lie. We, we were We've been ingrained in it. We're not only surrounded by a lying culture, but from childhood, we have all known how to lie. Children are living, breathing examples, y- young children of, sorry, I don't mean to indict you. Oh, we were all there at one point or another. So even if you're younger, I'm not just picking on you. We've all done this. They are the model of lying to avoid consequences, right? Did, did, did you hit your sister? Oh, of course not. I did not hit my sister. Did you take that? I did not take that. I don't know how it showed up in my room, right? (laughs) That vase that fell over, I was not even in that room. I don't know how that happened, right? We've all done that. We've all had kids who've done that at one time or another. So the the point is we know how to do this, and we know the perceived benefits. If I can pull this off with a straight face, I might get out of trouble in this situation. I might just be able to, to get away with this. So let's think about some areas where we may be tempted. How about exaggerating your own achievements or knowledge? Exaggerating who you are and what you've done. You ever claimed or pretended to know more than you did? Or even just hoped that nodding a lot would make it look like you knew what everybody was talking about, (laughs) even if you had no clue and it was going over your head. I, I, I worked in politics for about eight or nine years this is you know, only not all that long ago. So it was a latter, later part of my life. And so I had a lot to learn. And there were countless times where I just, mm-hmm, yeah, OK, and then Google and try to hope I could find an answer to what it was they were talking about in that meeting. We're lying if, indeed, we're trying to give that sort of sense that, yes, I completely understand you, when inside I'm saying, I have no clue what you're talking about. Um, do, we, do you ever pad your resume or tell a story and, and sort of start to change the ending to get something a little more compelling, something a little more favorable, something that sounds a little more exciting, even if it's not entirely true? In his book on the Ten Commandments, Philip Reichen tells the story of George O'Leary and his five-day tenure as coach of Notre Dame football. Some of you remember this from back in 2001. O'Leary hired, and in a matter of days, some reporter digs up some stuff on his resume and says, hey, you didn't actually have that master's degree. You never actually earned that. And your your playing time at New Hampshire was really actually non-existent, wasn't it? And so George O'Leary was forced to resign. O'Leary resigned. That's the right thing to do. His brother told Sports Illustrated... Is anyone trying to tell me that resumes are truthful? In the America we live in, the willingness to lie on a resume is an indication of how much you want the job. That is spin. It is lying, but it is spin. When you now say that this thing that is wrong, which makes you believe that you really can't trust anything I say because I've lied, is now somehow virtuous because it shows just how badly I want the job. That's a remarkable thing. I'll add this in. I I pointed out to you, that's Philip Reichen recounts that story, that great book on the Ten Commandments. We've mentioned it, both Stuart and I have mentioned it to you before. I, I was Googling portions of this story, just looking back toward original sources of it. Came across at least... Two sermons on the internet where that story from Ryken's book was recounted almost word for word from Ryken's book with some minor changes, and no credit was given to Ryken having pointed that out. So that's the bonus for those of you who were here last week and heard the Eighth Commandment on stealing and plagiarism. <laughs> that's <laughs> remarkable to me when I'm listening to that saying, give credit, please, give credit. But anyway. Have you ever not shared credit for an achievement that wasn't all yours? Have you ever been in a situation where you took credit before the boss when there was some other people involved who probably should have shared in some of that, but it was an opportunity to to win approval more and not give credit? Um, Exaggerating our own accomplishments. How about exaggerating the failures of other people? Sort of the flip side. The the, the, the sort of statements about others that we make that are sort of meant to frame things so we look better and they look worse. Does that coworker really mess up all the time as you're willing to, to speak to somebody else behind their back? Uh, does your wife really never do that right? Does your husband really never remember that? Right? Those, those sort of things, they come up in marriage counseling situations where repeatedly it's the, the always and the never and you have to just go, wait, wait, wait. Do you really mean that? Does does he always do that? Does she never do that? Well, no, but we use that for emphasis because it it makes our story sound more compelling, and it makes them sound like they're the bad guy. And if that's how you're framing it and, and, and the conflicts that you describe regularly make your opponent look all wrong and you look all right, that is a violation of the ninth commandment. Speak truth. Sometimes our lying takes the form of misquoting others, taking their words out of context, mischaracterizing their tone, their volume. We relay a conversation. We change some words. We wrongly describe the person's countenance in some way. We we come back to somebody else behind that person's back because we're trying to win them to our side, and we say, oh, yeah, she was just she was yelling. She was out of control. I mean, we, we try to give the worst possible picture knowing that we're probably exaggerating it at that point and taking it out of context so that we can look better. Misleading, another form of lying. When we're asked, are you going to make that deadline? And we're saying yes, even though in our hearts we're already thinking of, there's no way I can make this deadline. What am I going to say when the deadline comes up? What's my next excuse going to be? We are misleading someone to believe something that we know is, is not true. Polite lying. That's when we respond to an invitation with some made-up, non-existent commitment. I've been invited to so-and-so's, and I really don't want to go, and so I'm, I'm getting out my phone and hoping there's something on the calendar on that date, and if not, I'm going to say that there is. Or, or worse yet, saying, yeah, I'll be there, and, and then just not even showing up and hoping that somehow they appreciate the fact that I didn't say no to their face and make them feel bad. I just didn't show up, and hopefully they didn't miss me. That's still lying. James 5.12 says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Not only is the point of that verse important, the the yes, be yes, and no be no part. But the interesting thing to me of that verse is it starts with, but above all else, um, above all my brothers, do not swear. He's just gotten done talking about suffering and being patient and enduring suffering. And he's saying to his fellow believers who are undergoing hardship saying, you need to endure, you need to be patient through this time. And then he says, but above all, you need to be honest. You still need to be truthful. Even in situations where you're going through hardship, you still need to model Christ likeness. And so when you say yes, mean yes, and when you say no, mean no. And if you mean no right from the beginning, then say no right from the beginning. Be truthful. When you answer someone or you're asked to give a commitment, keep your word. Be a person of integrity and do what you say you're going to do. If you, if you told your mom you're going to do it, then do it. If you promised your boss you'd go the extra mile and finish the, the job ahead of schedule, then finish it ahead of schedule. Don't let it be an empty promise. If you commit to pray for someone, pray for that person, something we all deal with as Christians, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'm I'm going to pray for you right now. Do do we do it? Then if we say that, then we should do it. We should pray for that person. Remind ourselves to do so, so that we're being honest. Jesus in Matthew 21 tells that simple parable of the the man who tells the two sons to go to the vineyard. Excuse me a second. And go and do some work. And one one says no, and then he goes and works. The other one says, yeah, and then he goes and does his own thing, and, and he doesn't go to work. And Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees, describes that. The one, you could say he dishonored his father in the way he responded by saying no at first, but then he did go and, and, and finish the work. And so when Jesus ultimately says to them, which of these did the father's will, even the Pharisees know the right answer. It's the one who said no, but did it, who actually obeyed, not the one who gave the right answer and then never followed through on his commitment. The ninth commandment demands that we do what we say. If we say we will, then we should as believers in Jesus Christ, even if it incurs cost, even if it's difficult along the way. Let's just last say, just just raise briefly just the ethical dilemma. Are there other times when it's, ever times when it's okay to lie? Because there's two interesting scenarios in the Old Testament. One is the the midwives, the, the Hebrews are enslaved in Egypt, and Pharaoh gives the order that if If the Hebrew woman gives birth to a boy, the midwife is to kill the child in order to stop the growth of the the nation of Hebrew people. Exodus 1.17 says the midwives feared God and disobeyed the king of Egypt. Soundly biblical principle here. They not only fear God, but they understand God's protection of human life. And so just as we've talked about before, we obey governing authorities unless they're calling us to sin. If they are telling us to disobey God, that's the, the point at which we say, no, I, I cannot do that. But then if, if you know the story, the Hebrew midwives then in their response to the Pharaoh said, it's really interesting. The Hebrew women give birth so fast. It's not like the Egyptian women. The babies just delivered so much quicker than the Egyptian women. And there's no, there's no real indication from the text that that's a reality as much as it's a really interesting story that Pharaoh had no way of disproving at the moment. But it certainly allowed them to say "Ah, we just can't get there in time by the time we show up the baby's already born it's too late to do anything and so that that can't happen. Exodus 1 20 and 21 says so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong and because the midwives feared God he gave them families. Twice in that passage says the midwives acted out of fear of God and clearly God blessed them. Hold that one for a moment. The other one is Joshua 2 and Rahab. the the Israelites are about to attack Jericho. They send spies in to scope the city out to decide how they will take over Jericho. And it is Rahab who protects them, who says, I've heard about you, I've heard about your God, takes them into her place, hides them. The king king sends his troops out to her place and says, where are those those Israelites? And she says, they're not here, they they escaped. In fact, you guys ought to move really fast because they're leaving town right now, you should go chase them. Well she's lying, we know that. And yet Hebrews 11:31 commends Rahab's faith. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We've got those we've got instances of the the Israelites in the Old Testament using military strategy, much as all of you folks who understand military strategy, there are times when you are going to put troops over here and bring troops around this way and and hopefully deceive your enemy so that you defeat him. There's, there's David pretending to have lost his mind in order to escape an enemy. And in each of these instances, here's what we see. Human life was clearly at stake. There was innocent human life that was being protected in each case. And there was extreme circumstances of evil that was bent on destroying human life. Rahab and the midwives, in fact, are, are, are actually putting their own lives at risk just to save human life in that, and that's commendable. Scripture does not condemn their lies. It does not point them out, but I think it's fair that we also point out that Scripture does not condone their lying either, and it would be completely fair to assert that God, in his providence, could have protected his people without anyone lying. All of that Now that I've taken both sides of the fence to say, there's the two sides for you. Scripture clearly forbids lying, and yet there are extreme circumstances in which God's word did not condemn specific lies that were committed, it seems, out of a fear of God and a protection of innocent human life. That's what we see described in Scripture. We should observe that. If you are ever in a circumstance where you are called on to make decisions that involve Deception for the protection of human life, those are, are good things to consider, those principles. I, I don't think there's a, a flat-out black and white here, but it is clear again, I would point out, that, that those are not condemned. Those actions are not condemned by God's law, but neither should we rewrite God's law and redefine lying. Lying is still lying, and God calls on us to speak the truth. And so for, for all of us, each and every day, Ultimately, the call is to discipline ourselves, to resist the temptation, as, uh, to, to shade the truth, to whisper behind someone's back, to, to make things up, to flatter people when it's dishonest, but we're hoping to somehow gain them to our side, to protect ourselves with falsehood. Let me just end with a passage from Zechariah chapter 8. God's Word just sort of ties this all together here in Zechariah 8.16. These are the things that you shall do, Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. He's given us clearly the the put off. We're not to be lying, exaggerating, fabricating, misleading. We are instead to be people who speak truth, who are characterized by an unusual degree, at least in our culture of honesty. Not only in the courtroom, but in the car on the ride home. As we interact with colleagues at work, we should be people who are marked by being forthright and truthful and trustworthy of integrity, who our yes means yes and our no means no. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as the God of truth. We thank you that the reason these things matter to us today is because they are spoken by your word, and you are a God of truth. And so your condemnation of lying, your calling to put on truth, is as meaningful and real and true today as it was when it was spoken first by you thousands of years ago. So we pray that you would enable your people that we would be humble before you, that where we, are, where we are too comfortable in saying things that are exaggerated or misleading, that you would convict us this week, that you would bring us to a place of desiring to speak that which is true, even in circumstances when it might be difficult. Help us, Father, to reflect your character in the integrity and keeping of our word, that we carry on in everyday life. Lord, if there's anyone here who is not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they, they Lord, need to know the one who is truth first and foremost, and I pray today that you would awaken within them the, the truth of the Savior Jesus Christ who came and gave his life on the cross for lying, plagiarizing, harmful sinners who do things, who, who offend, who hurt, who mostly sin against you and your son came and bore all of that on himself in order to endure your wrath that we might in the place of our sin be given forgiveness and righteousness father thank you for that thank you for your sweet work in us and may your spirit this week enable us in those circumstances when we are being tempted to to play with the truth enable us to speak that which is true